This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And I think that could be a compliance officer. And I don't think it necessarily matters whether they're the originator of the scheme to cover up. I think if you're in the room, and you say nothing, particularly when you know that it's relevant to an investigation, then you're in jeopardy. So I think there's potential issues for compliance officers going forward. That was Jonathan Armstrong. In this episode of Life with GDPR, we take things in a little bit different direction today as we have a more wide-ranging discussion about the conviction of former Uber CISO Joe Sullivan and what it may mean for CCO and CISO liability in the United Kingdom and the EU under GDPR. It's a fascinating look at a very well-known and indeed notorious case here in the United States for its implications outside. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be back with Life with GDPR. Armstrong wants to look at an issue that occurred in America. So, Jonathan Armstrong, over to you. Yeah, thanks very much. I'm going to divert from one of my usual topics, but return to one of my established ones by looking at cybersecurity and the conviction of Joe Sullivan. For recap, for those who don't know it, Joe Sullivan was a lawyer. He was also an information security specialist, and he was the former CISO at Uber. And this all, in part, concerns the regime change at Uber with the bad CEO going and a new CEO and a cleanup campaign. But it also concerns a ransomware attack, which was disguised as a bounty bug payment. Now, I guess the first thing to say is that Many of the people that I know in the information security community would count Joe Sullivan as a friend. He's definitely who was respected in some sectors of the industry. He'd previously worked at Facebook, at eBay, and at the U.S. Department of Justice, where he worked, I understand, with Robert Mueller at the DOJ. He moved to Uber. He found with the new CEO in part over the incident we're going to talk about in a minute. But he still got a job for Cloudflare after that and was still gainfully employed in the CISO community. And he was convicted last month on one count of obstruction of justice and one count of misprision of a felony. And I suspect that's an offence that we gave you probably in exchange for the Big Mac. And and obviously, it's not a term that comes to most people's everyday talk, but it's effectively covering up something that you shouldn't have covered up. He's awaiting sentence. The sentence is planned, I think, for the spring, although he has now lodged an appeal. There are people on the call who'll know better than me how that'll affect timing. And 
This was really about the cover-up of a data breach in 2016 at Uber that affected 57 million Uber drivers and riders. And effectively what had happened is there was a knock on the door or a virtual knock on the door from Uber, from some people based in Canada. They effectively tried to hold Uber to ransom with this data. Uber had a bug bounty budget, so a budget that was allowed to pay for relatively trivial errors in its code. And they used that bug bounty budget to pay the hackers and to ask them to sign an NDA to cover all of this up. And at the time, Uber was uh, under investigation for another security breach. Note, not the one that they're currently investigating. You may think that Casiv has holes, so does Uber's security policy. And the U.S. authorities said, not a good thing that you didn't tell us about this and you weren't open with us. And the new CEO said the same, sacked Sullivan, and as I've said, federal proceedings followed. Some people say that the idea really was to turn the heat upon Sullivan so that he would expose Uber's former CEO, who was the guy that the prosecutors really wanted to get hold of. But I have to stress that's rumor rather than originated in any fact. So is this a one-off or is it a trend is the next question. In my view, it seems that it isn't a one-off. I think it's interesting that the DOJ have said that there could be more cases. They've said, quote, we will not tolerate concealment of important information from the public by corporate executives more interested in protecting their reputation and that of their employees than in protecting users. Where such conduct violates the federal law, it will be prosecuted. And I think it's indicative of the fact uh, or, or indicative of the FTC's approach, perhaps, is the fact that they did a settlement with an outfit called Drizzly, an Uber subsidiary uh, more recently by the FTC with the CEO in that case of Drizzly, where it's, to my mind, a, a really odd settlement in that it, the settlement attaches not only to Drizzly, but also to the CEO personally. And as I understand it, if the CEO moves to any other corporation, then that settlement where he effectively has to personally supervise data practices at the corporation moves with him as well, which seems to me uh, by my ears to be somewhat strange. So first of all, And I know you're all going to have questions, and I'm scrabbling through to get to them. Question number one, could this also apply to compliance officers? In my view, probably. I don't think it mattered necessarily that he was the CISO or the CSO. I think what perhaps had some role to play was the fact that he was a lawyer. And I think there was some you-should-have-known-better elements to this. But I think that it applies to any corporate officer who the feds decide has covered up stuff that they shouldn't. And I think that could be a compliance officer. And I don't think it necessarily matters whether they're the originator of the scheme to cover up. 
I think if you're in the room and you say nothing, particularly when you know that it's relevant to an investigation, then you're in jeopardy. So I think there's potential issues for compliance officers going forward. And we had debates previously about whether noisy withdrawal was required by law. And I think it puts all of that stuff back on the table. So next question, could this occur in the EU as well? Obviously, yes, it could. Many EU corporations are US listed or have connections with the US, which would bring jurisdiction for the US authorities. But in any event, there are provisions under GDPR, for example, that would possibly come into play. Things like transparency under Article 5. Bear in mind the fact that transparency is the area of GDPR where the highest fines have come. Recent statistics say 66% of GDPR fines include the GDPR principles, 18% uh, include data security. So a high chance of getting fined for the corporation there. As a side note, Uber has been fined by authorities in the UK, the Netherlands, and Italy for this particular breach, a 4.2 million euro fine in Italy for this breach, including for lack of transparency and not being clear with people the effects of the breach. So transparency is number one issue, I think, under GDPR. There's also obligations, obviously, to tell the PA of a data breach under GDPR Article 33. You have to do that usually in 72 hours. Unavailability of data in a ransomware attack is also a breach. The data doesn't have to go to the baddies. You have an obligation to tell data subjects, which Uber did have here under Article 34. They've been fined, as I say, by EU DPAs for not doing that. There's a duty to cooperate with regulators under Article 31. And then finally, under Article 34, there's a power of DPAs to do audits, and you have to then effectively cooperate with them. And in some circumstances, conduct like this can be criminalized in the UK as well. So in the UK, under Section 148 of the Data Protection Act, you create a criminal offense if you conceal or destroy information that could be relevant to an investigation. And then two things, I guess, finally, is class actions. Are class actions likely? I think, as Tom might say, hell yes. I think there are obviously scope for litigation in the US, and why not? Because that's the litigation capital of the world. But also in the Netherlands as well, where there's a class action type construct slightly different to US, which is already being used against Uber. There's a potential UK class action compensation claimed of about £1,500 per person, which given the numbers of drivers and riders in the UK could be really significant. And the cover-up will clearly be a key theme in that litigation. One last chance, one, one last topic to raise before I let the lions start. Insurance. Insurers are obviously more likely to be focused on data breaches, in part because their payouts have gone up, and in part because they're focused on that sort of stuff because of nation-state attacks, because of changes to the Lloyds policy, because of some recently settled litigation over attribution, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's harder than ever to get cyber insurance, particularly hard, I think, if you haven't been open with your insurers about your prior track record. And obviously, it's difficult to get insurance 
against criminal acts for CSOs and executives as well. I think the bottom line from my perspective is that I think it's a significant case. I know some people say it turns on its particular facts and anyone who covers stuff up deserves what they get. But I think there's more to this case than that. I think it will send shockwaves through boards. I think that compliance officers are going to need to be really careful. They're going to need to do proper due diligence when they go into an organization to check they're not inheriting problems. They're going to have to negotiate hard on their contracts when they go in. So things like the right to independent legal counsel, privilege obviously makes that complicated. Things like looking at the DNO insurance policy and seeing if you're covered in that. And then I think finally, people are also going to have to take a hard look at remuneration. My suspicion is that one of the factors here was the fact that executives like Sullivan frequently receive a relatively low base, but high upside depending on share price. So I think some people on juries, some prosecutors think sometimes you've got too much skin in the game. There's too much incentive for you personally to cover stuff up, to increase share price or maintain share price so that your options vest or so that you can cash out stock. And so I think anybody going into an organization has to look really carefully at their, at their comp package. So if you've got too much skin in the game and bad things are going on, then I think you're personally more liable as a result. So I know I've probably ran over time, but I think there's just an awful lot to cover. And I think it's one of these things that we do best as a group to try and throw around some of the issues that are involved. Matt, do you have some questions and or comments for Mr. Armstrong? Oh, where to begin with this issue? (laughs) First, while the idea is in my head, for those people who really want a good look at this case, there is another podcast out there, Law They, several weeks ago, had an interview with a lawyer who wrote a paper about this. His name is Kellen Dwyer. Both the paper, I don't remember Mr. Dwyer's law firm, I wish I did, and the Lawfare episode are well worth listening to because I think this is the potential to be a really big deal, especially for compliance officers, the idea of this misprison offense. Now, I had to admit, I had not heard of misprison until I heard that blog, that Lawfare podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I had to look it up. And Jonathan, I don't know what the legal history is in the UK, but apparently it was adopted in the United States in the 1700s, I think during the Washington administration. So a bit of a stretch that something from the 18th century would be used to prosecute somebody in a data protection or data breach case. But when you, oh, somebody said Alston Bird, there, that was where Kellen Dwyer is working. Go dig up his paper that he wrote about this case. Let me just start with a lot of people saying, wondering, is this legit or not, this idea of misprison? I think the moral principle here is pretty clear. If you shrink it down to the example of a family, which I find is always a great way to think about ethics and compliance issues, you, the parent, come home, you find the family car is wrecked. You know that probably your 17-year-old is the one who did it because they had the driver's license and they can't drive. But then you find out the 14-year-old knew about this but didn't tell you about it. What would you do to the 14-year-old? 
you you would strangle them just like you're going to strangle the 17 year old for wrecking the car if you find out your other child knew what your child was doing and they didn't tell you about it you'd be furious at your other kid that's the moral principle here i think at work with miss prison so i'm not opposed to this but it raises some really difficult questions could the government bring similar cases around an fcpa enforcement action that the company wasn't disclosing and you, the compliance officer, you find out about it and you're going to have to do something about this because I, it's one of those things that you can't pretend you don't know. And therefore, you'd have to think through, do I have a duty to disclose this? Because if I don't, the feds could come after me. But Jonathan, my other big question that is in my mind is uh, you had mentioned this could affect your employment contract, your right to outside counsel, your pay structure. This assumes that you, the compliance officer, have an employment contract. I don't know how many of them actually do. Mm. I don't know that you could get DNO insurance. You could get the right to outside counsel. I, I, I can't imagine you would. I think a lot of companies would laugh you out of the office. But my other point mm. would be, okay, let's even say the compliance officer gets away with that in the contract. What about their deputies who might also find something? And if you're a senior director or senior manager of ethics and compliance, and you find out about this, that people are sitting on knowledge of a felony and they're not confessing it, you can't unknow that and you're going to have to respond to it. And I think that this opens a big can of worms. I'm not opposed to the can of worms being open, but we should remember that cans of worms are stinky and messy for a reason. And I don't know what a lot of people are going to have to do with this, but this is a mess. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. We're going to link to the quarterly compliance client alert on this topic, so I hope you will check that out. The uh, link will be in the show notes. I'd like to tell you about two recent limited edition podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. The first one celebrated 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses. It's entitled Ulysses at 100. Lessons for the 21st Century Compliance Professional. The second is Never the Same, Why Business Has Changed Forever After the Russian Invasion of Ukraine in Five Key Areas, Supply Chain, Sanctions, and a Corruption as National Security Issue, Cybersecurity, and ESG. You can check out both of these podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. The Ulysses series is under the podcast series, Greetings and Felicitations. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you'll join Jonathan and I again where we take up another issue around GDPR. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.